Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Are you the kind of person who is naturally curious? I mean, really curious about what makes some communities similar and others different? If you are the curious type, then this chat is for you. Today, we are talking about an academic discipline based on curiosity. It's called anthropology, and we're going to discuss what it has to say about making change. Today's Changemaker Chat is with Nikita Simpson. Nikita grew up in an Australian biracial family and credits her now extensive curiosity to her early interest in understanding what makes her families different and also what makes her family similar. She's undertaken powerful anthropological work around care in the foothills of the Himalayas and in the United Kingdom during the COVID crisis. Today, she tells us about the anthropological lens and how she learned to apply her curiosity through a discipline of research that asks, why is a person and a group of people like they are? What does it take to then walk alongside communities and learn long-term? Her insights about slow change, how people find the agency to make change, and who leads powerful change provide lessons that travel. So, let's go. I'm Amanda Tattersall. Welcome to Changemaker Chats, conversations with people changing the world. Changemakers also produces episodes that are feature stories about social change campaigns. Changemakers is supported by the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy lab. You can find out more about Changemakers on our website where you can also sign up to our email list. It's changemakerspodcast.org. Nikita, welcome to Changemakers. It's delightful to have you here in Sydney. Oh, Amanda, it's so amazing to be here. It's such a beautiful day and all the more beautiful for being able to spend time with you. Oh, well, and for me too, we're going to have an awesome conversation, I hope, about all of your interesting work that you do. But let's begin by having you introducing yourself to our audience by explaining what kind of change maker are you? Oh, well, I, I don't know if I create change, but I hope that I track and try and understand the kinds of changes that other people are making around the world. Um, uh, I'm an anthropologist uh, and as an anthropologist, what we do is we immerse ourselves in the lives of others. We try and understand the kinds of relationships that they have, you know, what drives them, how they think, what matters to them, what kind of languages they use um, in order to understand the changes that are impacting their lives and the way they're making change for the better uh, uh, themselves. Yeah, okay, right. So that is interesting, right, to want to immerse yourself in the lives of others. 
I reckon that that I, I'm interested to understand where the drive to become, you know, there's lots of different types of academics and I know that you're employed as an academic these days, but if you wouldn't mind sharing the long story, right? So how did you find yourself eventually deciding that that was what you wanted to do in the world? Oh yeah. I mean, I, I'm such a privileged person to have found a vocation, a job that basically formalizes the thing I love to do all the time. And I suppose the reason I love to immerse myself in the lives of, immerse myself in the lives of others and really try and understand how they think is because I've been brought up into very very different cultures. So I grew up here in Sydney in Cronulla and I uh, have been brought up though in two very very different cultures. Um, my mum and my mum's family, a Punjabi Sikh, they migrated along these. Uh, colonial roots from originally Pakistan uh, through to India at the partition of India in 1947. And then they made their way to the UK through Malaysia, Bangkok, and eventually to Australia. So there's kind of a deep migrant story as many of us Australians have, but that's kind of uh, rubs up against my dad's culture, which is, uh, you know, a, a Christian Australian background. And I suppose growing up, I was so privileged to spend um, time with these two beautiful families who actually got on strangely well, but to really see how those different families really structured their care relationships, what mattered to them, you know, their values, their emotions, the expectations they placed on each other really differently. And neither was better or worse, but, you know, it, it, I was kind of brought up at the intersection of these two cultures. And, you know, as many of us who have migrant backgrounds, um, uh, you know, there was this kind of drive to try and understand, you know, in a, I suppose, cliche way, you know, how one belongs within a diaspora, you know, how one kind of negotiates these different pools, you know, expectations of being a young woman in a, in a Western society, you know, trying to understand what you take forward of your um, traditions and your culture, um, but then also, uh, you know, push back against some of the, I suppose, patriarchal or other forms of, um, of those traditions. So... Can um, I ask, can I ask? Yeah. So just to, if you don't mind, to paint a picture, you said that there's like something that was different. Like, can you, can you give an example of, I, I know, something that you experienced where, just to paint a picture of those differences that you, were, that you said you were experiencing between two different families with two different cultures, what was something that was, that struck you as, as interesting in its distinction? Yeah, totally. Um, so, I mean, there's thousands of different examples, you know, there's, there's more difficult ones and there's more painful ones and there's also really funny ones, right? So, uh, for example, my grandfather's funeral uh, last year and which was a really really difficult moment for my family my grandfather was a really um, one of the first Sikh men in Sydney um, you know he was a real force of nature and a very jolly person and he was a uh, orthopedic surgeon and um, we were we had this beautiful funeral for him and there were these amazing stories that came out during the funeral about his time at Sydney Uni being a doctor, you know, being the dance secretary for the Sydney Uni ball. And um, my other grandparents were there listening, my kind of Australian grandparents who are from Queensland. And they couldn't believe that uh, 
that their friend Avtar, my grandfather, had also had this kind of other life, right? So I suppose you kind of, over my life, I've seen these two very different cultures um, expect different things of each other and then kind of really undercut those expectations. Yeah, that's how, like, the, what, you know, expecting everything to be different, but actually not yeah, finding everything exactly, to be different. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, when my parents got married, you know, it was one of the first interracial marriages. And, you know, I don't know a whole lot about that time. But what I do know is that my grandfather originally wasn't comfortable with it. You know, it was a really new thing for the diaspora. But he went back to his family and uh, he asked, and they asked, you know, what does his father do? And they said, oh, you know, he said, oh, you know, he works with me at Bankstown Hospital as a doctor. And so they said, well, what does he do? And, and uh, the, he, the, he said, oh, well, actually he's a doctor too. So my, they were like, what are you even worried about? So I think here, you know, you see that, uh, you know, that's a different kind of classist narrative, I suppose, about how you build relationships. But um, I think things are always more complicated mm-hmm. than uh, what meets a surf, what meets the eye um, yeah. when it comes to growing up in in a kind of interracial background, and I think that complexity is what we study as anthropologists, mm. right? So, so um, you know, understanding our own classist prejudices, our own racial prejudices, our own um, different uh, assumptions that we make about other people, and really trying to immerse ourselves in their lives in order to undo those assumptions mm. and you know give in to the complexity that drives people and their relationships. And and so I'm, I am also wondering, like, not everyone who's the child of, uh, you know, a biracial family becomes an anthropologist, uh, but you have, right? Is, do you think that there's any other experiences that you had that really, or, or people or, or moments that really sparked this particular interest in understanding how 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 people are, how people interact, how people live? Mm, absolutely. I, I mean, when I left university, I had the privilege of working for this amazing organisation called the SHM Foundation. And uh, what's that mean? Uh, SHM. It just stands for the uh, the <laughs> people who started it: Sophie, Henrietta, and Morris. <laughs> okay, yeah, it's not more complex. <laughs> no, not more complex than that. And um, and so I was working in their foundation team, so their charitable arm, um, led by a, a wonderful person called Anna Kidd. And Anna had set up this methodology for. Uh, basically building psychosocial support groups for young people living with HIV, particularly young people, but also uh, women, you know, other people with stigmatized conditions, uh, particularly in Southern Africa, but also in Mexico um, and in the UK, actually. And so I was working there as a project manager, you know, uh, straight out of uni and, you know, had this incredible experience working with a group of young people living with HIV who were called the mentors of this project. So these were all people who, um, you know, uh, hadn't necessarily disclosed their HIV status, um, but had disclosed it to that uh, particular organisation. And in doing so were, um, uh, uh, co-designing psychosocial support methodologies with the organization. And through that experience, you know, designing these, particularly we used mobile phone support groups that were kind of like WhatsApp groups, but private. Um, we, we kind of set up this program across Southern Africa in Zimbabwe, in South Africa, Pretoria, Cape Town, you know, uh, lots of different places in kind of rural and remote communities, in urban communities, kind of led 
led by these this group of young people living with HIV. So, so through working with these people, I really came to understand the value of working, of really trying to understand how somebody else approaches the world because they were able to tell us really basic things about how we design these programs that I just wouldn't have thought of. So for example, when we were running a set of workshops, um, I I was working with one of these young people from South Africa. We'd flown out to uh, Harare to run these workshops with uh, an organization who were seeking to set up support groups for young women living with HIV. And we were doing this design workshop and uh, they said, well, there's just no way you can use WhatsApp. And we were like, why not? You know, it's so accessible. Everybody has WhatsApp here. And they were like, well, of course you can't use WhatsApp because you can forward messages. And it it was so obvious that how could you create a private psychosocial support group when you know, you can forward messages. That's a huge breach of confidentiality and privacy that would have been baked into the very fabric of the intervention we designed, right? So if I didn't have that person, even if I didn't spend the time kind of, you know, really working with that person, finding a way for that person to actually lead our design process, then I would have met, missed this like really, really basic thing because I use my WhatsApp technology in a different way. I don't forward messages, right? So, so yeah, really simple things like that, Amanda. And so you You've gone on to to sort of see anthropology and this sort of curiosity about how people live and how people work as sort of core to who, who you are. You know, how, how did you, you know, you got from, how did you get from there, I guess, to here? I, I was really lucky enough to begin, um, actually, let's go back a little bit, a bit further. Yeah, please, please, yeah. take us, move us around. <laughs> we don't need to see time yeah. as linear. <laughs> so for, for my undergraduate dissertation work, I um, ended up in a, a small village in the Himalayas. Um, of course you did. Yeah. <laughs> well, I had to come to, back to India. I really wanted to move back to India. Um, I really wanted to learn the language of my grandparents, you know, but I had to be far enough away from where my family was in Punjab um, that I could do what I wanted to do without <laughs> them, you know, keeping too much of an eye on me as a kind of 21-year-old girl, in, uh, you know, in India. Um, but I also had to um, be close enough so that I could come home sometimes and, you know, take care of them and be taken care of a little bit. Um, and so I ended up in uh, a community in the in the Himalayas, the Western Himalayas, um, close to a city called Dharamshala, which you might know of because that's where the Tibetan government in exile, the Dalai Lama, resides. So it's a really interesting place. You know, you've got lots of different people. You've got uh, lots of different religions coming together. You have a big t- Tibetan diaspora, but you also have a local community who've settled in the hills, you know, who come from different caste groups and different kind of livelihoods, but who kind of make up this real kind of dense tapestry of life um, in this place. And so I I ended up living in this village that was going through these like really rapid changes. So this village was really close to, you know, an urban area, but it was also kind of really high up in the mountains. So it was kind of being enveloped in this urban sprawl. And you saw, you know, day by day, all of these, you know, hotels coming up, lots of different trekking businesses, paragliding businesses and things like that. So I just want, I want you to get a sense of how much change this place is going through from being a kind of really pristine, you know, remote place to being a kind of centre of global tourism. And um, it's always been a centre of trade and people passing through in many ways. But, you know, now all of the local people are 
are kind of unable to practice the, you know, farming and pastoralism, shepherding practices that kind of make up their traditional livelihoods. And so I ended up in this village and I started to realize just how much these broader changes, you know, these processes of urbanization, gentrification were shaping the way in which people um, were uh, managing their care relationships and the different kinds of pressures that they ended up. And can I ask care? Like, why did you care about care? Uh, I mean, I care about care because when you change economic life, care relationships also change. So in this community, what was happening is, you know, a, a, a community that was really quite equal in care relationships between men and women, where men and women both participated in care caring work, you know, in the household and also on the shepherding route was really shifting to a a kind of much more uh, acute division of labor. So this community, um, you know, used to practice shepherding and, you know, women used to give birth even on the shepherding route. But as they'd become sedentarized and set up houses, you know, women first began farming, you know, so they were kind of responsible for farming work, you know, growing beans and wheat and rice. And, but, and now women, as men kind of give up their shepherding and women give up their farming and men start tourism businesses or, you know, they go to the cities to work, then women want to be housewives and they want to kind of take care of their houses. You know, you asked why I got really interested in this place. Well, I got really interested in this place for a very particular reason. So I was living in a house uh, with a young girl who was about my age and she was, you know, really smart girl, but she was a little bit different from her peers. Like her peers were um, really happy to do lots of chores around the house. The burdens on them were quite heavy, you know, they had to go to school and they had to also come home and help their mothers in the house. And, you know, life wasn't easy for them, right? But this girl, when I was living with her, she started kind of um, what her parents would have called kind of acting up. So, you know, she started dressing up, you know, she started putting makeup on, she started going to um, the village square and kind of, you know, being much more publicly visible than a lot of those young women were, uh, usually were. And then, you know, it, it kind of got worse and worse, you know, or, or she kind of started doing it more and more until she started to get sick. And, uh, you know, she spent these days at home under the blanket. She got very pale. She got very kind of volatile in her moods. And, you know, she, she told me, I have this thing called tension. And tension was a word that she used and that other people used to describe what she was having. And I started digging a little bit deeper, you know, what does this word tension mean? And I realized, you know, across actually South Asia, um, tension is a word that's used to describe the scrapes, scrapes and strains of life. You know, it's a really common word, but it's also used in a much more acute, specific way to describe the way in which people experience kind of mental distress or, um, or bodily pain or the ways in which people's lives produced particular situations of mental ill health. And, you know, that got started, you know, she, she was experiencing that in her body. You know, she said that she had kind of a, a overheated body. She said that her menstrual cycles had changed. You know, she also said, uh, and this kind of came out a bit later, that she'd actually become possessed by a malign spirit. And that kind of, you know, at that point, you know, I was really young. I hadn't been trained in anthropology before. I hadn't done my PhD. I hadn't 
had any mentorship, I didn't really know what to make of that. So her story really kind of drove me to all of these different kinds of questions. Like, you know, what does it mean for this woman to experience this now? Why was she using a word tension instead of using something like depression or anxiety that in the West and biomedical categories we might use? You know, what does it mean that she was possessed by a spirit? Was she like so-called making that up or was that a real experience? You know, what did that stand for for her? Should we even think about it as standing for something at all? Mm. You know, in the and in the West we'd go, oh, maybe it's a psychosis. Exactly. Right? We put these labels on it that exactly. are definitely medical. Yeah, right? exactly. And is it helpful to do that? Yeah. You know, and and so that started a kind of whole. I suppose next, I don't know, like seven or eight years of yeah. research that ended up being particularly about when people experience these really broad, you know, existential changes to land, livelihood, ecology, care, you know, the really kind of broad structural shifts in life. When people experience these, how are they experienced in the body and the mind? You know, how do they shape experiences of care in the household with intimate relations and how are they then experienced in the body? So I'm really interested in how people scale up and down between their bodies yeah, and these the, wider the, the very small, forces. the intimate yeah. and, and the... And the hugely social. Yeah. Oh, how fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. And anthropology is really good at doing that, right? It's really good at understanding, inhabiting someone's really small, nuanced world and then scaling up through the structural relations, you know, the care relations, the, you know, relationships with the state, for example, up towards the broader changes that um, a community is going through. We almost have started to answer the first, the next question. You know, we're getting to the question of how, how we make change. And, and I actually was wanting you to explain to the audience, many of whom might not even know, have never heard of the word anthropology, right? Like, you know, that's that's a quite, it's quite a nuanced, specific, um, academic word. Maybe if you could explain what it means and then like what, what role or place you've already started, does anthropology allow us to see the world, to, to see and understand change? Like what is its specific role? Well, I don't think I can answer that question without first foregrounding a kind of dirty history that anthropology has. No, no, no. Yeah. Ground us just like a good anthropologist would. Yeah, absolutely. So, so I, I mean, particularly in this country, but also all over the world, in India, in Africa, um, uh, anthropology was used as a tool of colonial governance, right? Mm. Like, you know... And people might have heard of that. Yeah, exactly. And often when people think about anthropology, they might think of a kind of, you know, lone person sent by a British colonial a government. Exactly. In, invading a, you know, a community that probably didn't need them. Absolutely. Yeah. And then, you know, collecting information that then can be used to govern that that yeah. community. So that's a kind of... I and mean, Stealing it is a, their stuff, right? Yeah. I yeah. mean, it's a stereotype... You know, I don't think it's all. It was all like that necessarily, mm. but it, you know, a lot of it was. And and I think you know, as anthropo- as a discipline, we as anthropologists, you know, we teach anthropology now in a very different way to um, how it was taught. You know, even 10, 15 years ago, anthropology has been on a kind of century long journey of kind of you know um, really trying to understand those colonial roots and um, you know excavate those assumptions about how we do our work. But I think the outcome of that excavation is actually something deeply political and and kind of almost the opposite of how uh, anthropology was used in the first instance. I think anthropology really helps us 
to kind of try and understand worlds and voices that are not necessarily the mainstream, you know, that are not um, what governments are making policy for, who are not usually um, profiled as the kind of people who, uh, you know, we should be learning from. And those aren't necessarily always like you know, remote tribes, I say in quotation marks, right? You know, they might be any kind of community who's otherwise marginalized. So I think anthropologies and anthropologists uh, can be, have a really important role in kind of foregrounding those voices. I also think anthropology can be really um, useful in undoing the dominance or what we might call hegemony of particular uh, communities' voices, um, uh, that that kind of have a lot of power in society. So understanding that, you know, for example, a group of bureaucrats also have a culture and a theory of mind and a, you know, um, kind of certain values that drive them. And, and that shouldn't we shouldn't just assume that they're normal. Exactly. In, again, in quotation exactly. marks. And everyone else isn't, but they also have a particular culture. Interesting. Yeah. So it helps us to kind of excavate, you know, what drives anybody, any group of people, mm. you know, and what kind of philosophy, strange philosophy might drive, you know, decisions that are otherwise usually, you know, claimed to be subject, uh, objective, yeah. right? So, for example, there's lots of interesting work on uh, science labs, right? Like, you know, what are the what are the philosophies that drive the decisions of so-called objective scientists? Mm. You know, what are the philosophies that drive the objectives of so uh, so-called objective uh, venture capitalists, yeah, for example? The so we can also with all the different logics, exactly. Right. We can study up as well as you know studying out and across. And I think you know we're in a really exciting moment in this discipline where uh, anthropology can be used not necessarily in a capital P political sense. So, you know, uh, representative democratic sense, but to really try and understand the contingencies of ideas, Mm. um, uh, particularly as we make policy. Yeah. So holding a sense of uncertainty, holding a sense that things are being created by the relationships that people are in and that nothing is objective, that everything is created, constructed by the culture that you're in. Yeah, absolutely. How exciting. I can understand why you're in that. So... Brilliant. So you've got this approach and you've also mentioned before that, you know, it scales up, scales down. So you come to a community, to a person and become curious about that person, say, and you then can bring in the social forces and social constructs and cultures and so forth that, um, that are at play so you can understand so it's not just about understanding a person as um, separate from their environment. It's about understanding people and culture and practices, whether it's tension and mental distress in the Himalayas, um, in the context of their of their environment. Yeah? yeah, absolutely. And that people are formed through their environment. So I always think about it, you know, in that anthropology just four kind of key big things. You know, we look at relationships and how people are formed through their relationships. We look at symbols, so images and ideas that kind of come to stand for models of relationships, you know, that guide us that, that, and that allow us to make meaning from life. We look at emotions and affects, but maybe in a kind of little bit of a different way to how a psychologist would. Um, you know, we look at how uh, certain emotions might be collectively felt and how those might in turn be g- generated by things like advertising or policy or um, rituals and things like that. And we also look at sense. So, you know, how do different perceptions 
sensations and sensory experiences of the body, you know, how are they not just biologically biological, but they're also shaped by, you know, the meanings that we create um, from those sensations and perceptions. Yeah, wow. So, so this is this constant dynamic between big and small, between yeah. power systems and the individual. Exactly, yeah. And, and we always come up with kind of different models for thinking about how the individual and society relate to each other. Yeah. Okay. So you said that you took this, you, le- you then went and did a PhD, right? You had this profound experience with the community, with the woman that you were, that you were staying with and you went and did a PhD. You went and did a whole bunch of research to try and make sense of what was going on. Tell us a little bit about what you found. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I can't tell you this story without introducing you to Sham. Um, Sham was the most important, is probably the most important person I've met in my research life. Um, Sham... Uh, is and and was a shepherd from the Gadi community who are this pastoral community who live in the Himalayas. And I met him when I came back to do my field work in this community that wasn't the original community I went to, but a different village close by. And Sham has a really interesting story. He, for eight years, worked as a shepherd crossing over the Himalayan range with his flock um, down to Punjab and then back up to a, a beautiful place called Chamba until it became impossible for him and his family to keep practicing shepherding because of um, the enclosure of pastures as people built houses and sold land, you know, the the increased am- amount of traffic on the roads and the an ecological change and climate change causing things like lantana weed to kind of run through pastures and making it impossible for, for his sheep and goats to, to keep you know, alive. And so Sham, I met totally by chance, but he became my main research collaborator. And we basically spent the next um, uh, 16 months uh, and then have since, you know, kept on working together, basically trying to chart how this change has impacted this community. And we ended up conducting a big study of tension. You know, tension came to act as this kind of complex word that, uh, that, gave us insight into how livelihood and land changes had been experienced in the bodies of this community. And so we basically particularly worked with women at that stage and now we're starting to work a bit with men. You know, anthropological work takes a long time, but we particularly worked with three generations of women and we looked at how tension was experienced differently across these three generations who had in turn experienced these wider structural changes in very different ways. So we worked with a kind of a lot of elderly women who had grown up on the shepherding trail and who had worked hard physical work their whole lives and they were kind of getting to an an old age and suddenly you know they had you know kept beautiful mud houses they'd kept animals their whole lives and suddenly their children and daughters-in-law particularly weren't, weren't interested in doing the things that they saw as really meaningful to kind of keeping their culture alive and um you, you 
you know, and caring for one another. And so they felt really kind of unacknowledged. They felt like their lifetime of work was unacknowledged. And, you know, now that they were just eating food that came from somewhere in Punjab and not from their own gardens, you know, they felt that they weren't doing the kind of uh, amazing life affirming work in the fields that allowed them to connect to the land. And so, but the way they expressed that was not by saying, oh, I feel disconnected from the land. They said, you know, I feel kamjor. And kamjor uh, is this word that that is Hindi, but is used kind of um, actually across South Asia to describe bodily weakness. So these women said, my muscles are getting, you know, are weak. Atrophying. My, they're atrophying. You know, th- there's actually vitality that's being sapped from my body, wow. you know. So they were using their body to speak to these wider structural changes and the ways in which they felt alienated from their family and from their environment. And and it wasn't just them, Amanda. It was also other generations who also were using these kind of complex embodied terms. So we also worked with their daughters-in-law, you know, their daughters who were, you know, younger married women who wanted to set up these houses and who were aspiring to be part of, you know, an Indian middle class. And, you know, they wanted to have a beautiful concrete house with, you know, a beautiful, uh, they didn't want to work in the fields anymore, but often their, their husband's incomes didn't allow allow them to have a steady kind of growth or send their children to private school or um, or do some of the kind of base, buy some of the consumer goods they wanted to, for example. So, so their experience was of this other kind of tension, what they called gurki tension or household tension. And that household tension, they said, oh, you know, I experience household tension in my body. My body becomes overheated. You know, my BP or my blood pressure gets high. I can't sleep. I ruminate. And we might call that anxiety, right? Like, but this was a very particular constellation of symptoms that showed that the care work they were giving to their family was just too much, you know? And it was really interesting. And as I've reflected on over the years, you know, it, it, it really shows that these women were both registering burdens of care that were too acute, you know, they were too much for them, but they were also pushing back on those burdens of care. So, you know, they, they kind of were able to render visible their labor that they weren't able to talk about through their bodies. So, wow. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, so even though they, they weren't experiencing the same kind of tension that their, their mothers-in-law or their mothers were experiencing, they had a different set of concerns that were kind of causing or shaping their distress that they were in turn experiencing expressing through their bodies. Mm. Oh my gosh. And was that, what about the third generation? <laughs> yeah. So the third generation is, is about young people, right? So, so young women have a really different kind of life even to their mothers. So for one, these women all went to school, right? Their mothers didn't necessarily go to school or if they did, they went to kind of fifth standard year five. Um, uh, whereas the younger generation have all been to school right up until, you know, um, our, what we'd call year 12. And, but, but they're kind of in this strange 
combined where on one hand, because they have this education, they want to go to university, they want to get, you know, um, employment in the city or, you know, uh, know, both to earn for their family and to earn for themselves and for their dowry. But also at the same time, they have all these responsibilities at home in the household. So they're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. There's this kind of vista, you know, before them of opportunity, but also they're kind of being pulled back to these forms of responsibility and forms of female expectation. And that's quite a familiar story, I think, to a lot of people who grow up in a in a diaspora or um, who are trying to kind of marry two cultures. And so these women expressed, so I mean, everybody experienced what they called future tension, but some young women experienced it much more acutely than others. And they would have episodes of disassociation. They would sometimes uh, have kind of unidentifiable pains and aches and they'd be taken to the hospital, but they couldn't find anything wrong. So speaking through their body, you know, they were able to kind of pause some of their caring responsibilities. And some of these stories ended up well, you know, women Women were able to resolve their distress. They were able to, you know, find a great marriage or find a really good job. And they, you know, often when I came back, you know, these were episodes that then kind of died away. But for others, you know, the stories aren't so happy. And, you know, the the kind of, uh, I suppose, tension, right, between those <laughs> two different kinds of expectations really got too much for them. Mm. So. And so what I see in this is this incredibly deep understanding of how a community is working. Does an anthropologist work with a community then ask the question, what might, what might change look like? Mm, yeah, absolutely. So I'm asking that question of myself now. And I suppose I have very different registers of work, Amanda. Like for me, this work in India is really a long game. Mm. You know, I'm going to be working there, I think, hopefully for the rest of my life. I hope to take my children there one day. You know, I hope their children's children will come, my children's children will come there one day. So I, I feel like the kind of change I'd like to affect there is really about building skills in that community to be able to understand and document what's happening in that place and, you know, allow people to generate their own projects. So for example, I also work with this amazing person um, called Sujanya Borua, who is a designer, a, a, a kind of young people's learning designer in the Himalayas. And she started with a group of uh, amazing young women, a collective called the Dharachiri Collective. And they are a group of young women who do all sorts of different things, you know, really fun projects, but also they create art exhibitions, they do research, they do history, uh, community history projects that are all about kind of really trying to make change in the lives of women. So I see my role as kind of, you know, supporting them sometimes. I recently gave a workshop about my work to them and, you know, I'd really hope to have a long-term kind of engagement with them. So so that kind of change is, is yeah, it's really the long game. But mm. I also do other projects that are really, really much more kind of targeted, I suppose. And I can talk a bit about those if you Well, like. I was thinking we could go back to the United Kingdom. Yeah, and, absolutely. Because I, I know that you did, you know, we all lived through 
um, the peak of the pandemic and COVID, um, every place had its own experience. But I know that you were in the United Kingdom at the time and your anthropologist mind and practice was put to work. What happened there? What, what, what could an anthropologist possibly do in a pandemic? Well, uh, actually, the pandemic was a time where the anthropological knowledge was needed more than ever. <laughs> so a, a lot of other social sciences and, and policy is made on data evidence about how people live in their everyday lives, right? And usually we live in a pretty normal way, um, you know, and so we're able to build models for how people will behave, you know, in certain kinds of uh, experiences or events. The pandemic was an unprecedented moment and people were not behaving in the way that policymakers or economists or even other social scientists expected them to behave. And so there was a really unique opening for an anthropologist who is usually kind of more marginalized in policy conversations um, to actually be at the center of the debate. So I have an amazing mentor called Professor Laura Bear and Laura um, is a professor at London School of Economics and she was also my PhD supervisor. And Laura was asked to be on the SAGE committee, which is like the government advisory um, board uh, in policymaking, kind of the Anthony Fauci um, of the right. UK, right? <laughs> we all know what so, that means. <laughs> yeah. So, so um, Laura, Laura basically started by working on death. So they, the government came to her in, you know, March, 2020, and they said, we have this moment of what they called excess death. So a lot of people oh. were dying from COVID and they didn't know how to manage what it would mean to have a good death in this, these kind of circumstances where we couldn't usually, you know, where usually we'd be surrounded by our family or people would be able to visit people in hospital, you know, and burials and memorials would be kind of, you know, a, a, a part of life. All of these things were kind of impossible. And so they came to Laura with this question of how do we have a good death in COVID? And so Laura and I established a group of anthropologists at LSE. Uh, you know, we had colleagues from all over the country and, and um, you know, who were of very different generations going off and doing interviews with different kinds of communities, you know, across faith groups, across classes in society, across, um, you know, different kinds of uh, ritual traditions to try and work out what does a good death look like in the pandemic. And what we realised was actually, you know, most people kind of agreed, you know, people were really willing to shift their expectations of death and burial and funerals in order to protect other people's lives, right? But they needed to be consulted and acknowledged. You know, they, they, they couldn't, you know, for example, burials couldn't be, you know, mass graves, right? Or oh. there had to be forms of memorialization that were possible. Otherwise, you know, what we realized, there would be really, really even deeper trauma yes. that were generated, you know, as you would have in the aftermath of a war, right? Yeah. Or, a, or a really severe natural disaster like an earthquake. So we were able to render visible there, what was common about society's narrative in this exceptional time, but also what was unique for the different communities? Mm. What specific forms of acknowledgement, for example, would a Sikh community need? You know, what specific forms of acknowledgement would a mining community from the North need, right? So, right? so having a kind of very different ethnographic model where it wasn't just like one person working in a community, but lots of people doing rapid research all over the country that actually was able to generate policy advice. So, you know, that was the first of 
many different rounds of that kind of work. So we worked a lot on care policy, on what what I think they called in the UK and New Zealand care bubbles. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, we worked on stigma and isolation. We worked on uh, kind of what, what it meant to have a good work life, why how people should be recompensated you know, or furloughed. So all, all sorts of different topics that surrounded, you know, what would it mean to have a, a, a caring community in COVID and how could the government's policies both generate kind of really positive experiences like mutual aid, for example, and also how could the government's policies around COVID generate new forms of inequality or exacerbate existing forms of inequality? And so... We now, um, well, I'm wondering, I mean, and I know that, that you've done extraordinary, there was extraordinary research during COVID and people should check out Nikita's website that we're going to put in the show notes to find out more that you have written around um, that work. I'm wondering now, we are, I mean, not post COVID, but we are, we are, we are out of the pandemic. What, are, if any, are some of the, in, are there any insights from that time, you know, this, this exceptional time that you think linger to now, like the, the, you, the things that you learned there that you think actually are particularly applicable irrespective of whether there's a crisis or in a different kind of crisis. Mm, mm. Yeah, absolutely, Amanda. And, and actually that's kind of what I've really been working on uh, over the last few years because COVID was a moment that rendered visible the forms of inequality that our mm. society experiences, you know, around all sorts of different markers. So maybe it's best if I tell you really practically what I'm working on at Great. the moment. So, yes. so through the COVID work, I met this amazing person called Suad Dule. And Suad is originally was one of my interviewees. She is a, a psychotherapist from the Somali community in Birmingham. And she's also a community activist. And you know, we spoke multiple times during the pandemic where she was telling me about the experiences of the Somali community in uh, the Midlands, but also across the UK. So this community, uh, a refugee community who settled um, over the last 30 years in the UK, and uh, many of this community are really kind of isolated. They don't have many opportunities uh, to kind of uh, for upward social mobility. Um, they've also experienced a lot of discrimination in kind of anti-terror policies. So there's a kind of systematic marginalization, I would say, of this community in the UK. And in COVID, uh, we made a film about these experiences. And, uh, you know, we made that film because Suad called me up and she said, we have to document what these women are doing. And the story that we told in that film, which maybe you can link to in yes, the show I notes. Yes, I will. I yeah, will, <laughs> is about is about, you know, how the these women um, who are mainly single mothers came together to basically fill a gap in care that their community uh, lacked because the state wasn't there to support people. They had to do it themselves. But the irony was when they were doing it themselves, you know, when they, you know, were providing each other with meals, when they, you know, were finding ways of sharing um, uh, financial resources when people didn't have jobs, you know, that involved kind of connecting in a time when connection was stigmatized, right? So this community then became stigmatized for uh, uh, taking care of itself. Exactly, exactly. And I, and I think that alerted me to the ways in which particularly forms of racialized stigma run through, you know, post-colonial British society. And so now moving on beyond COVID, we're 
tracking kind of the legacies of that stigma in this community. And also we're tracking the ways in which um, actually housing is the biggest issue and the biggest manifestation of the abandonment of the state in this in this group and how, you know, those women are living in, are often living in temporary accommodation or housing that's covered in mould um, and how, you know, the, uh, the number of times that they raise their voice and they try and make claims against the government to try and provide them with basic you know, accommodation, sheltered accommodation, are just met with absolute silence. So that's a really different kind of example of the way anthropology can be used to basically um, identify a collective experience and narrative and basically try and become an activist yeah, around it. but what I, you know, like we all say that what you what you watch or what you attend to, you change it, right? And it and seems to me that your work as an anthropologist is quite... You're definitely not trying to do the change for people, right? It's the opposite of that. It really is walking beside or even walking slightly behind a community mm, in the absolutely. work that you do. That's what I'm hearing. But what it feels like from this, all the stories that you've shared is that in the, being a passenger or being a being connected actually that is the change agent. Like the, the change process comes from being a witness and in being a witness to how people, communities are working, communities over time, that, 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 that's part of a change process in and of itself that, you know, in being able to observe how the Somali community is working in Birmingham, that that community then thinks, well, maybe we can lift up our activism. Maybe we can re rework the stigma that we're facing and, and still push back or in same in the, in the Himalayas in terms of what you were describing. I mean, my final question is just like, how has this work as an anthropologist changed you? Oh gosh, Amanda. I mean, I don't think... I mean, these, particularly these people I've worked with, you know, I've mentioned a couple of these people, Sham, um, Sujanya, Suad, these people who, when else in my life would I have met them, right? Those people have changed me. And, and to be able to, you know, understand my own privileges, my own assumptions, but also the ways in which, you know, I do have skills in, you know, creating relationships, creating spaces for people. So I feel like, you know, anthropology is a vocation and, you know, there's brilliant anthropologists in this country who are generating spaces for others to step into. I think, I think I'll always be learning from people like that. And if I can, you know, build a career learning from people like that, you know, it's happy days for me. Awesome. Well, Nikita, it's been a delight to have you on Changemakers today. And I certainly hope that people can look further at some of your work and be inspired about the power of anthropology for making change. Oh, thanks, Amanda. I've just been so wonderful to talk to you. And I hope that you, you know, watch our film and, and hear about some of these amazing people who I've had a chance to meet on my journeys. Awesome. Thank you. Changemakers is hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all of our episodes. This is Series 7, so there's plenty to be inspired by in our back catalogue. Changemakers audio producer is Jules Walker. We are now hosted by Acast, so you can find us there, as well as all the other podcast places. Our series sponsor is the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy dash lab. 
Like us on Facebook, Instagram and threads at Changemakers Podcast. We are at Twitter, although it's called X now, at Changemakers99. And I'm there very occasionally at Amanda Tats with two Ts. And you can check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all of our stories. And don't forget to take a look at the content from our organising school if you want to take a deeper dive into the art of changemaking. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.